0: Hello and welcome to the High Reliability Podcast presented by Goslin Martin Associates. I am your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is focused solely on the healthcare facility management professional and it's sponsored by the Career Hub. You can link to the Career Hub off the Goslin Martin Associates main webpage. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do so. I'm excited about today's podcast. I've been wanting to do this one for a period of time now. um, Today, we're going to be talking about education, college, and degrees. Specifically, is a four-year degree necessary for success in leadership positions in healthcare facilities management? Today, we have three guests who are joining us. I don't know their answer to that question, so we will all hear those answers at the first time. So I don't know what they're going to say when we ask if a four-year degree is necessary for leaderships. So this could be a very short podcast if they all say, yeah, it's necessary. So we'll hang up at that point. It might be less than five minutes, hopefully not. So who's joining me today? Well, first we have Steve Sponbrook. Steve is CEO and owner of MSL Healthcare Partners, a firm that assists healthcare organizations improve their physical environments and improve patient outcomes. MSL Healthcare Partners has been assisting companies since 2008, and in total, Steve has more than 25 years of healthcare facilities management and compliance experience. Steve's a familiar face nationally. He's actively involved in the American Society for Healthcare Engineering. He's also served as a faculty member and committee member for ASHI. Steve's also a member of the NFPA. Steve has his BS in construction management, and he has his MBA in healthcare administration. Steve is located down in North Carolina, and he also has a CHFM and CHC. Jason Tate is our second guest. Jason's Director of Plan Operations at Mountain View Regional Medical Center in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Jason's worked in healthcare facilities management, and he's taking on progressive leadership positions for for more than six years. Jason has an interesting background. Prior to getting his start In the healthcare trades, Jason worked in the trades as a journeyman HVAC technician. Jason has his associate's degree in arts. He was previously pursuing a BA in philosophy. After a two-year hiatus in education, he's returning to the University of Arizona to complete a BS in sustainable built environment. Jason has his CHFM. CHOP, and he is a certified energy manager. Our final guest, our third and final guest, and Corey, if I get your last name wrong, feel free to jump in. I should have asked you before we started. That's bad preparation. Corey Majsek.
1: It's my check here, but you know, you're doing better than percent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Corey.
0: Corey is director of facility operations based at St. Luke's Medical Center. In Milwaukee, Wisconsin. St. Luke's is part of Advocate Aurora Health, a system based in Illinois and Wisconsin. Corey has a degree in biomedical engineering from Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Full disclosure, Corey and I are both graduates of Marquette. I predate Corey by many years at Marquette, although Corey and I are both hopeful that Shaka Smart can return the basketball program to respectability. But since we have a Tar Heel on this podcast, we won't talk about basketball. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Pleasure nice
2: be here. Yeah, oh, pleasure to
0: So, before I um, ask you, gentlemen, that, that question, I just wanted to um, set the table. Because this is, you know, education and college degrees is something that Jack and I speak about. A lot in our role as recruiters, um, you know. Right now, actually, we have so many jobs open, which is a good thing. They're in various um, various degrees of of being filled, but there's a lot of opportunity out there, and that's a subject for a different podcast. But I would start just by saying, from our perspective as recruiters, when we work with healthcare organizations, primarily and almost all will ask for a college degree as a prerequisite in a director of facilities management role for a hospital or healthcare system. If the candidate does not have their college degree, they at least have to be working towards it with the ability to get that college degree. So from a market perspective, that's what we are seeing all the time as recruiters. I don't want to talk any more than I have to. So I'm going to send that question out to our group of three. The question I'm asking specifically, is a four-year degree necessary for success in leadership positions in healthcare facility management? And we can take this topic anywhere, gentlemen, however you want to tie it in. We can talk about the market, the necessity for the degree, what you're seeing. Corey, I want to start with you though. Um, What do you think? Is that four-year degree necessary for success?
1: Well, Peter, thanks for throwing it to me. You know, I'll give a joint commission answer. It depends. <laughs> um, and, and, and what I mean by that is, we have many successful individuals in the managerial and director role currently throughout the country who don't meet that education requirement and have been successful throughout the years. Is it a good predictor of success? Well, I, I think that's what we're here to debate today. But um, we've got individuals who are doing well, but when it talks, when you speak about it, Positions coming up, individuals who are looking to step into the role, you know, HR has determined that that's part of the prerequisite to get that degree to be considered to show that you're well-rounded. So again, it depends, not necessarily, uh, but I'm interested to hear what Steve and Jason have to say as well.
0: All right. So we have a squarely, it depends. That's good. I wasn't expecting the it depends. Jason, let's send it (laughs) out to you, please.
3: I've wrestled with this since we talked about it a few weeks back. And, and I, to be completely honest, I, I don't have my, I obviously don't have my bachelor's degree yet. Uh, and, and part of me keeps leaning towards, towards it. I think it, it is almost always necessary. And, and that isn't trying to just look at myself as exceptional. I just have, I've talked with a lot of people who, who um, who are now my peers dealing with folks who've come up through the trades without degrees coming into director positions and the difficulties that they've had with that. I, I think for nothing else, the ability to communicate, to read and write and speak clearly is essential for these roles. I, I'm, I'm almost interested in taking the question in the other in a, in kind of a slightly different direction and saying is an Emmy ME, or uh, mechanical engineering or an electrical engineering degree necessary? Because I see that often in um, job postings for director positions that those are those are required or preferred, and that's a little that's a little more interesting to me. I, I don't understand that. Um, I, I I can sympathize with why somebody in an HR office would would pick up on that and think that's the direction that needs to be gone, but I I don't I don't I don't agree with that myself. So um I guess my answer squarely is is most of the time it, it's probably necessary. At, at a minimum some some level of an associates or something just to get basic communication and writing skills at a at a higher level than, than just a high school level.
0: Hmm. A lot to chew on there. Let's come back to that. Um Steve, what do you say?
2: Well, first of all, I want to say Corey stole my answer, which because uh, I, I <laughs> T- typically say that as a consultant, I answer every question with, it depends. Um, but, and, but that's, I, I believe he's spot on with that. It does depend. Uh, but I also agree with with what uh, Jason was saying in that um, I think some level of education is important. For me, you know, I've, I've been around uh, more years than I care to count at this point in terms of working with healthcare facility managers. And I've seen a, a trend that's developed over time. Um, when I first broke into this industry back in, uh, well, before the millennial, um, <laughs> you, there were, you know, the trend t- typically was the, the the technician that had proven some leadership skills that would, you know, typically, you know, boiler mechanic kind of person that worked their way up and became a facility manager. Um, and then as we started to healthcare evolved, um, it became more, popular to have someone that was degree prepared as an engineer. Um, But I think, and there was really, there was sort of a breaking point back in those days. It's like, if you're less than say 200 beds, it was okay to have someone without a degree. If you're over that, then there was a degree to expectation. Um, As we've gone through the years, it's, you know, the bachelor's degree was kind of a minimum expectation and master's prepared was preferred. Um, So that was sort of a recognition that there were more, Soft skills, business skills, those sorts of things that that were attractive as a facility manager. But for me, I think the number one key, the absolute number one characteristic is having a passion for the industry. Because let's face it, there's easier ways as an engineer, particularly (laughs) uh, to make a living. You know, they're probably financially better and less stress. But I think those that I've seen that have really excelled in our industry have been those that have, have. really developed or came with a passion for healthcare and and what it means to be a part of the healthcare industry as a whole.
0: Good answer. So that's interesting. So we have, it depends on two, um, almost always necessary for one, for Jason, I guess I have to give an opinion or can I be like a politician and never give an opinion and just kind of, <laughs> can I dance in the middle and go whichever way? So I I would say though that I think um, I'm going to go on the other end of the spectrum and not just to take a position um, that nobody else did. I don't think it's necessary Unless you're a, like, if you're an academic medical center, I think you, you need the degree without a doubt. If you want to go vice president, yeah. you need a degree without a doubt, maybe even a million. Steve, you talked about different thresholds of hospitals, right? Maybe a million, you do yeah. need a degree if you're at that level. But the reason I would say no, and, and, and I'm dancing on both sides and I'm going to go with what you said, Jason, I think if, if you don't have that degree yet you've got, say, 20, 25 years of experience and you can communicate well because you can't avoid that soft skill part of it. We do need the soft skills. I would say that the degree is not necessary if, with the caveat, that you've got those soft skills. Corey, what say you?
1: Peter, I, I want to follow up on, on your point. If you say no how often do you find yourself in a position with candidates <laughs> that you're representing that you have to maybe sell them or because they don't?
0: Yes, that's a great question. We do find ourselves in that positions sometimes where we have to, I'll use use your words, sell that candidate. It's difficult. Now there are some times though, where I'm not going to try to put that person into the organization. Cause I know for whatever reason, culturally, A non degree person won't work, even though, even if I think they can. So there are situations where, and it has to be that appropriate situation where we do try to advocate for a a candidate who's got, say, 20 to 25 years of experience and they can do the role, but they don't have the degree. I think this is where your CHFM, CHC can come in handy um, uh, in that regard. But it does happen. I wouldn't say 50% of the time, it might happen 20%. 25% 25% of the time where you're trying to advocate for somebody who, who doesn't have that degree, um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But there's plenty of people doing this role who don't have the degree. I mean, I'm sure you guys you know, you guys know them and have worked with them.
2: Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I think uh, in terms of, uh, you know, we've, we're all here because of, I think we recognize the fact that there's going to be a lot of positions available and not enough people to fill them. Um, at least that seems to be the trend right now, particularly in healthcare. And so uh, I believe that organizations are going to have to be a little bit more mm-hmm. flexible and creative about those that they hire. Um, and I think it was Jason who was talking about whether it needs to be a bachelor's in engineering or not, or an ME. Uh, I personally feel like that, and that was really the trend, you know, a decade ago is that we want someone with an engineering, PE preferred, and I felt like that was probably a little bit of overkill for most organizations. Now, I believe you have to have technical skills and the technical competence to at least be able to understand the systems that you're working with and how best to uh, manage those and manage the people that work with you to help maintain those. But they're, the majority of the day, at least from what I've witnessed, is spent you know, more on you know, budgeting and leadership and management and organizational development and all of those things that, uh, you know, you don't learn in engineering school.
1: Steve, I think that's an excellent point that, that you bring up just because, you know, an engineer's grade that makes you the subject matter expert, but as you progress higher and higher, you have to manage more business side as you're speaking to. You know, that's where I see you really come into play. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that... Um,
3: Sorry, Peter. Yeah, I was going to say, go ahead, the, reason, the reason I said, I, I almost feel like there needs to be some exposure. Maybe it's not a degree, but you know, this exposure to, to managing a business is specifically for the comments that have been made. Um, guys that I've seen, and I again, I haven't been around nearly mm-hmm. as long as, as many of you fairly new to this industry, um, all things considered, but, um, I come into facilities and, and see the utter frustration for men who don't have that business background when they're not getting their capital, when they're, they're not getting, they're just not getting what they need to get in order to get their job done and take care of the facility. Right. It seems like they're just banging their head against the wall. And oftentimes it's just, it seems like an inability to, or, or, I don't know. I don't want to say inability. I don't want to be uncharitable. It, there's a frustration, right. With, with not understanding how the business side of, of the environment that they're in works and where those roadblocks are to them achieving their mission yep. um, and the mission of the organization, how to, how to, how to align those two things. Right. So uh, I, I don't think, it, I don't necessarily think a college degree uh, is, is, going to answer that question for, for everybody, right. That's not going to solve that problem for everyone, but at least hopefully if they have the right, um, education mix, um, can, can begin to work through those things and, and at least begin to understand and, and tailor their responses to the things that they, the things that they're trying to get the funding, they're trying to get the the staff, they're trying to get whatever, um, so that they can achieve the mission and, and be successful. And not feel like it's just a it's a futile uphill battle every step of the way. I think there's I've seen that in in, in a few people.
2: Yeah, I would say that's unfortunately been a trend for a long time. Um, and yeah, you know, I can recall years ago working with some facility managers that really struggling to get capital renewal funding simply because. Uh, they'd never been exposed to presenting their needs in a, a case based on return on investment and increased efficiencies and uh, reliability. Um, you know, it was, it was all about messaging to the C suite and the board, and they just had never had an opportunity to hear those types of arguments. And once you, you know, they'd gotten that little bit of education. They were much more successful in achieving those goals. And I think that's, to me, and especially in healthcare facility management in today's world, those skills are, are, I don't want to say more important Mm -hmm. than the technical, but maybe they are more important than the technical. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you can go out, there's lots of uh, partner organizations and engineering firms that specialize in healthcare that when you need that really, strong technical background, you can get it. And, you know, but the day-to-day stuff, I just don't know that it's necessary. Can I, can I ask a question?
0: So that you guys have gone down an interesting,
3: yeah, go uh, ahead. It, it, it was Jason, actually. Um, the, I, I, I am interested oh, in knowing back to that ME and EE. what, what's the, what's the underlying mentality behind that? That's one, and I that that I I've n- never been able to get my mind wrapped on. I've talked to PEs that that are that are on the design side, and ask, you know, I most if if we're going to be on the facility manager side, we're never going to do that, right? Like, why do I need a PE? I'm not I'm not stamping drawings. I'm not designing this thing. Um, I think, as Steve said, you need right. a technical understanding of these systems, but um, you know, a baby-faced electrical engineer coming out of university is going to have far less understanding of the mechanical systems that are running in the plant than, um, than somebody who's got 10 years of experience as a technician, right? They they can calc all day long and they have some fundamentals that, that ME could possibly go into aerospace, right? Some of these programs are so generalized that they don't have anything to do with building sciences. So I'm trying to understand where that comes from. What, What was the, what was the mindset behind that?
0: You know, I would say, and then I'll, I'll I'll give an answer first, and then everybody else, you know, feel free to jump in. I think from our perspective, when we see the ME, the EE, and especially the PE, the professional engineer, is an interesting certification that organizations will want to sometimes throw at the end of this job description, because you're right, Jason. How often are you stamping drawings in this position? You're not. I think... I think part of the ME, the mechanical and the electrical engineer demand, I think some of that is simply a legacy demand that comes from five or 10 yeah. years ago. I think sometimes, and this isn't meant to be a criticism because everybody is tasked with doing more with less. And just as you're cutting you know, facility department employees, you're cutting HR employees, I think sometimes job descriptions, they get passed down and nobody ever QCs them just to ask. And, and I think you see this in some job descriptions because- You gentlemen have been talking about kind of the changing demands, moving from the technical to the business acumen and the real estate acumen and the communication acumen. I think sometimes it's simply a legacy job description that just gets passed down and folks don't QC it. I think that's probably more often than not the reason. And I think secondly, sometimes you know, you guys know the role has changed. I think the perception out there is still you need to be mechanically or electrically based to do the job well. So I think it's a, a combination of two things, Jason, and I'm not sure, and I don't say this again to be dismissive, I'm not sure people think through why they're asking for that particular, for those three particular um, credentials. And as you know, the mechanical and electrical yeah. engineer is getting harder to find.
2: And I tend to agree with that, Pete. So what I've seen, you know, again, I've been around for a while, is that uh, at some point, you know, the early 2000s, maybe the late 90s, there was this recognition in the at the sea level again that that they needed to sort of up their game, so to speak, in terms of of the people that were managing their facilities, and so they they look at well, it's an engineering field what's the next level of engineering well that's professional engineer um but you know and i've I've never felt like a pe was something that was really required in fact i mean if you think about it in aviation terms you know we're not going to be doing design as a healthcare facility manager. And if we do that occasionally, there's a competency issue and that's why you wouldn't want to go flying with somebody who hadn't flown in six years, you know, just, <laughs> you'd want them to get some practice and get back up to speed. Um, so, you know, but the, you know, it's interesting because I still see that. I mean, I still, like you, Pete, I get these calls occasionally. It's like, oh, this: we need a new person, and this is what we're looking for. And one of the first things that comes out of their mouth is we want this, you know, it's usually a degree is like not even listed because they've already moved on to the master's degree. But um, there's still that legacy of wanting that professional certification and you know I, I hope that chfm has started to kind of replace that because that opens the door um and i think it, it's it's a much better indicator of whether someone would be successful as a hospital not to take anything away from peas i know how extremely difficult it is to get that uh but in terms of whether you're really a good fit for healthcare, I think a CHFM maybe a better. Yeah, I remember measure. sitting in my, my certified energy manager course
3: uh, with a lot of a lot of PEs on the on the electrical side and the mechanical side, right? And it, it was it struck me as interesting how few of them had a robust understanding of, of systems, right? They they were they're so niche. Um, a lot of and that, again, most of these people aren't coming from the facility management side of things, so they haven't had to be that kind of Swiss army knife, right. Of, of understanding all of these things, but some of the questions, and again, I'm not trying to be uncharitable. It just struck me as, huh, that I thought that was common knowledge in our field. Um, at times from people who are working for very reputable firms and doing, doing, um, design work and energy performance work and things like that yet, yet are unfamiliar with, um, with the fields right across the aisle from them, right? They're they're so niche in their in their industries that they and that this right. this job. Let's face it, you can't be that, right? You can uh, As much as I love energy and and everything to do with that side of things, like I get to spend very little time <laughs> actually look, looking at those things, right? And <laughs> and messing with those types of systems, I have to like like Steve said, rely on my staff. So um, anyway, I'll I'll leave it at that.
2: well and i think that's an evolutionary thing honestly when i first started back in 1992 the typical facility managers that i was working with and for would interact with the clinical side of the house mm-hmm. only when things were, had gone really badly, you know, and there was just, there wasn't this kind of team dynamic and, and, and I'll be completely honest. I don't think it occurred to me that I was, I was part of the care team until a few years into my career. And it's like, wait a minute, you know, if we don't do what we do properly, the, then nobody does what they need to do for these patients. Um, And that's, that feeling has only grown over time as I've understood more about how the building interacts from an infection prevention standpoint, et cetera. Um, and, and so I think you're absolutely right. I think you got, I mean, and that's a good thing to hear you say that is that, that you, know, you got to be part of that bigger picture.
1: So Steve, you brought it up a little bit earlier. When, when we're looking at predictors of success, uh, I agree with, you know, a CHFM or a CHOP. I think that's more industry specific and probably indicative of what, you know, the facility manager is dealing with day in, day out. Now, as you get to the director level again, your position is going to dictate where in the weeds you spend most of your days. Whether it's budgeting, whether it's forecasting, whether it's you know strategic thought. Perhaps that's where the degree comes into play, but it really depends. You know what that job title is, what that
2: core responsibility dictates.
0: I, I think as yeah, you, I think as you listen to your, your varied answers, it's, in, so it, do you think um, it's, you know, as the role is transitioned from more technically based to these different soft skills base that we need, do you feel that we need to, and I know lots of people are doing this, so maybe it's just patting each other on the back, but I mean, that... The role needs to be reexamined, and then the expectations for what it takes to be successful in the role need to be reexamined too D- does the does the need do do these two things lag each other? like do they go in concert with each other as the role is changed, we need to look at the requirements for the role. Does that make sense? I, I don't know that it does, but I'm just thinking out loud as I'm listening to you know all these changing demands have we re-examined what's needed to be successful too, or do we need to be re and go beyond the college degree? Or, or uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of tongue-tied yeah. on this one, but that occurred to me as I was listening to you guys
2: talk. I mean, I think absolutely you're correct that it needs to be re-examined. And I don't know that they lag behind each other, but um, perhaps they do. I mean, I, I think if, you, if we were able to get a group of, of C-level people And and honestly, I think if you had a CFO and a CEO and a COO on this call, you'd have three very different opinions potentially of what this individual should do and what the (laughs) skill set should be. So really what we need to do is find some, you know, a way to find those people who can meet the expectations of all you know, even though they may not all be direct reports, certainly they're influential and they need to keep all those disciplines happy. Um, But, you know, I think it's, kind of human nature especially you know we see there's a lot of people approaching retirement right now unfortunately um i guess fortunately for them but unfortunately (laughs) for those of us that are still in the business world um they are you know i think it's kind of human nature to go well i've done this job for the last 25 years i think i've done it pretty well so what i need to find is someone. Uh, very similar to myself that can come in and take over this role. And I call that the mini-me syndrome, right? It's like you you, you go out and you find somebody who's just like me. But the truth is, you know, mini-me is probably not exactly what the organization's going to need in the future. And uh, I don't know if you've you ever seen the movie uh, um, Crimson Tide with Gene Hackman and <laughs> Denzel Washington. It's an awesome movie, Good but movie. It's a great scene. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a secession plan fail movie. Um, cause it's just all about, in my mind, it's, it's how, not to do secession planning, but, uh, there's a scene in there where Gene Hackman's talking to Denzel Washington during the officer's mess on the, you know, one of the first lights on the boat. And, uh, he, he, Gene Hackman makes some comment about, you know, Rickover gave me my command and a button to push and all I needed to know was when to push it. And he looks at Denzel Washington and he says, for some reason they seem for to want you to know why. <laughs> and it and, and, and what I took away from that after watching it more times than I probably should have was that what Jean hatman was realizing at that point was the Navy and what the Navy needs out of a, a skipper of a, a a you know nuke boat is different to in that genre than it was when he got in. And I think that's what we're seeing in healthcare facility management. Now it's like what we needed 10 years ago, what we needed five years ago is different than what we need now. And certainly what we're going to need five and 10 years into the future as things evolve, um, you know, understanding technology and how to integrate and work with technology, I think is vitally important. Uh, I mean, there's just so many skills that go beyond just the typical, you know, engineering, uh, you know, in terms of when I think typical engineering, I'm talking about, you know, how the uh, HVAC systems work in the building and, and, you know, fire protection, electrical systems and those things that will always be there and those needs will always be there. But, you know, there's a lot more to it these days. One thing we haven't talked about that I would find interesting to hear from
3: everyone else, too, is. Is technological adoption? There's a lot of buzz, right? And in, in kind of the professional organization standpoint. You know, you go to PDC and digital talking talk of digital twins and, and all such. And Ifma is very much doing the same thing, right? And obviously, they're 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 oftentimes serving different verticals than we're, than the one we're talking about. Uh, and I, I tend to be kind of skeptical with the pace of, of the adoption of some of these technologies and, and quite frankly, the competence of, of teams to be able to, to utilize them effectively. So I, I think that's kind of, th- I'm throwing another monkey wrench into this conversation of like how, how technologically astute, how understanding of IT concerns and problems, I guess it's the collaboration standpoint, but, but just the use of digital tools in their effectiveness. Cause I see, at least in the healthcare side of things, I think it's, it's a multifaceted problem, not, not least of which is just funding, right. Oftentimes, you know, who's going to spend money on, on this facility management or engineering technology, software, whatever is as awesome as it might sound. If I've got, you know, an MRI getting ready to tank, it's, you know, or CT failing every other week. Um, I, I, wonder about the adoption speed of some of these things, but I, but I can't help, but, but wonder, um, when I hear people say like we can't we can't adopt that because we need to stay you know keep all of our documentation in binders we need to print everything up uh, there's there's a resistance to to technology that 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 has that mentality behind it that I'm seeing and again I, I'm I'll be the first one to admit I'm an, I'm a millennial on the higher end of the millennials but I'm a millennial and um that's it's a that's a weird perspective in the world we live in today given. How the ease of access we have to everything else from our phones.
0: Wow, yeah, Jason, you did throw a monkey wrench into it, and it, you know it's funny. And, uh, none of these, none of these, and then I'll, none of these issues are are linear. But I'm wondering, Jason, part of it is you're probably dealing with four generations in the workforce, right? Especially relative to technology. I'm assuming, and I'll just take the World War II generation the silent generation out of it, figuring maybe they've retired through COVID, but in some ways it's almost a change, like it's technology, but it's also a change management problem. Forget adopting the, the, the technology, think about how to get somebody used to working with an iPad yeah, or an iPhone. A, so it's, yeah. Then give them a, it's a, multi-layered
3: right? reality set of glasses and go tell them to walk around the building and, and use that to, to look up spec sheets. And stuff, right? It's just <laughs> like, that sounds fantastic. Right. But, I don't know. I don't know how many guys are actually. Happy. If anyone's got those, I wonder if they're sitting in their desk drawer gathering dust.
2: Yeah, you know it's interesting because I'm kind of going through a technology revolution right now, and, and te- yeah, you know the, the tools are awesome yeah. as long as they're useful, right? Um, and and what I'm finding is that. Uh, it, you know, one thing about healthcare in general and, and the people that we work with is they're all pretty intelligent people. And if the tools yeah. are useful for them, they're going to use them. They'll find a way to use them. And if they're not, they're not. Um, and so they won't use them and it'll be a waste of money. But I do believe that the technology, I mean, we, you know, everything is going to big data and, and data is so important in how we manage everything about our lives. Um, And healthcare, certainly, I I shouldn't probably say this, but sometimes we seem to be on the trailing edge when it comes to technology um, and have for a long time. Um, And and shame on us for that, because there's a lot of opportunities out there that I think can not only impact efficiency, but also safety and the effectiveness of care, even in our own space. You know, and I think, uh, you know... Understanding technology and even going beyond that, understanding uh, data security and, um, you know, cyber threats, I think, is going to be something that's increasingly important. Uh, you know, the health records are, are very attractive on the dark web, hmm. um, which makes us, you know, high-valued targets. And, you know, I living in Eastern North Carolina. We just went through the Colonial Pipeline thing. And in was not a lot of fun, you know, and it's like, you know, you would hope that those would have been pretty uh, secure systems, but apparently they weren't. Um, So I I agree totally. I think technology is going to be something, uh, and I could see someone with a really strong tech background Being really good as a facility manager.
3: Yes, especially frankly, from a project management mm. standpoint, mm. that, that so, oftentimes software implementation projects, exactly. uh, hardware implementation projects, execution of those technologies and, and operationalizing them, that you have to have strong project management skills, right, in order to, to just as much as you do managing construction projects, in my mind. Um, I mean, last time I'm going through a nurse call upgrade project right now with some yeah. staff terminals being installed and and trying to make sure that, that those aren't, you know, some very expensive digital clocks on a wall to make sure that they're actually effectively used, right. means (laughs) somebody's got to own that process of, (laughs) of working with the clinical team to make sure that, and that's, you know, all the way to it and informatics and getting all the integrations tied in. Otherwise it is, it's just a very expensive touchscreen on a wall in a patient room. So um, I think, I think this, all the technologies we're seeing are so powerful, but I, I do wonder if this is going to catch up to us at some point and it's going to be like overnight. It's going to be, Hey, look, we're, we're diving into this. We're, you know, whole hog in this big data thing. Now you need to be able to actually um, interpret this data. And I wonder how many um, directors, FMs are going to be, you know, jaws on the floor including myself, right. Trying to figure out how to make sense of, this mass flow of information yeah. that's being dumped in our laps and we're told to make sense of it in order to ju- you know, just in order to justify our new chiller replacement or, or whatever. Right.
2: Right. Cool. Analytics, you know, it's, it's going to be a key thing here. Uh, I agree.
0: So we started with a, a simple question, right? The simple question was, is a four year degree necessary for success in leadership positions in healthcare facility management? And from that, we have gone into soft skill components, technology components, mechanical, electrical components. We've spun completely away from that, which is a good thing. So that's not a complaint. That's always what you want to see happen. So let me ask a question, not necessarily related to do you need a degree, but related to the role as it exists today. Is this role as it exists too big for one person to get their arms around? How do you do that? With, with with staffs where some, most, most times you're losing people and you're not gaining people, where there are more demands, is this role getting too big for people? Degree or not? <laughs> Corey, I see you. Uh,
1: you're to go. Go. Yeah, I, I love the conversation because I think it just underlines how you build a team, whether it's a management team, whether it's a technical resource team. You need to be diverse in knowledge <laughs> and background, it, you know, in... Experience as well. Um, because, you know, as Jason and Steve said, you need those technical experts, whether it's in you know, IT things, whether it's managing that 50 year old boiler, that's what we're looking for. And not one discipline has everything. So it's just identifying the needs. So it's, you know, that management role, it's very subjective. And so is, you know,
3: your team. I'll, I'll dive in right on the back of what Corey said. I think it's a. I'll, I'll go with the maybe answer and it depends answer now. Um, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, this is a plan. This is a different question. Um, it depends on your leadership, okay. right? I mean, I I've had <laughs> leaders that expect me to be an expert in absolutely everything. They're like, hey, we want to, We want to build out this clinic space, and mm-hmm. this, how so many people we're trying to put in here, and I need a design, and I need a budget on that. And I'm like. I go okay, great. Let's get a consultant involved. Let's get an architect and engineering team in here, and they're like, no, no, no. We don't want to spend that kind of money. Like, we need you to take a look at that. And and then at the flip side too, well, all your EOC stuff needs to be managed completely, and you need to make sure all of your your maintenance guys are competency. And I'm I'm running a very small team, right? So. And I and I again I don't mind the fact that I get to dabble in all these things I hate being bored I love the fact that I get to learn all this stuff but I can't to expect somebody to be an expert right and to not be willing to to spend money when we're talking about building teams sometimes our teams are built of you know they they're consultants too right so uh, if you I think. The answer is yes, somebody can do this role if they have the right support and understanding from a leadership standpoint behind them. But if the expectation is, is they're going to be the only one managing all of that, then you're being set up to fail, right? You just can't, you can't do it. You can't do it with 80 hours in a, in a week. Yeah. If you, you know, you could try, but you're going to, you're going to fall apart pretty quickly mm-hmm. and you're going to make mistakes. And sooner or later, those mistakes are going to cost the organization. And oftentimes I worry, um, I scapegoating. Right, sometimes unfortunately, that because because one person is being asked to do yeah. so much and no one else understands in the organization any of it, the, the understanding is well, this person messed up right. inexcusably. Right, so I think we, in the industry, have to be at ad- continue to be advocates mm-hmm. for um, not being abused, right? And 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 when I say that, I mean not being not being taken advantage of and not being um, taken for granted either. But that's a that's a hard road to hoe when you, you know, you only get a couple hours or so a week with a C-suite team.
2: Um, again, it just depends on the leaders that you have. Yeah, I tend to agree with you totally on that. And one of the challenges I think a lot of us face and you know, or a lot of our peers face is that, you know, there is that expectation of, Whatever comes up, you should be able to accomplish it. Do it right, whether you've had any experience in that at all. I mean, you take that you know, design a clinic as an example. You know, you may never have done anything yeah. like that in your life. Or real estate management's another big topic that comes up yeah. almost every year when we talk about the ASHE annual, uh, because that's something that you know you probably didn't learn in school if you went to school, and you know now all of a sudden you're responsible for that and expected to do it well. And you know, the reality is there's not. Usually, someone in the inside an organization that's a true peer Correct. or mentor for the facility manager. I mean, whoever's in the C suite typically is a business oriented person, and that's not taking anything away from them. It's just they don't have the skill set that the facility manager has. Um, and I think that does kind of in some situations set them up for failure. And I hate that, but it, it is the case. I mean, some of the most successful organizations I've seen are. Uh, you know, as the world has evolved and we've become much more system oriented in healthcare as the the systems that were astute enough to say, you know, we're going to put a system role out there that's really just kind of a, almost like a mentor uh, resource for all our facility teams across the system to help them in these types of scenarios. And I have these discussions occasionally with with folks when they're trying to find a new facility manager, and I push them towards uh, Pete and Jack to help them find someone. They go, oh, we don't want to spend the money on that. And they go, well, you know, how, how, how valuable a, is your time? How long do you think it's going to take you to find someone? And, and how important is it for you to find someone that's incredibly uh, well prepared for the job that you have? And then, well, all of that's important. Then that's why you need to talk to Pete and Jack, <laughs> you know, uh, because they can help shorten that curve for you. They'll, they've got the individuals, and they, and bet, most importantly, it's like they, you know, I'm tr- not trying to help sell your business here, Pete, but I mean, <laughs> you know, it, you know, I, they they bring value in that they can help you determine really what you need, you know. And it's like I remember when we went through kind of rebranding our company about ten years ago. I, I use the analogy it was like going through family therapy as a company and you you know bringing somebody in from the outside to look at the organization and say okay you say you're this but you're really this did you realize that no you know and then uh which was actually a nice epiphany for us but it was you know uh that i, I just think that's important but i do see like you said all the time where the expectation is silly person can do all this stuff should be able to take care of it all um and that is a Recipe for disaster, or potentially, and you can, and I've seen good people yeah. have you know challenges in their career simply because they were asked yeah, to do I something they no, weren't really prepared to do. Go
0: ahead. Well, take the uh, take take the real estate management component of it that you guys just mentioned that you just mentioned, Steve, and let's go to Jason. You're questioning, you know, your question earlier, what, you know, mechanical electrical engineer, PE, real estate management. Is, say you're a mechanical engineer, say you got your degree 30 years ago. I don't know. Um, But now in a real estate management, you're being asked to interact with business development people, lawyers, potentially real estate moguls, board of directors. And that's just on the soft skill part of it. Forget about going into what might've been a gym and now turning it into a healthcare occupancy. I mean, just real estate alone, Mm -hmm. the demands on a person far exceed what you would have learned in college 25 or 30 years ago. You couldn't have envisioned it, right? And if you can't interact with those people, doesn't matter how good. You might be a PE, but if you can't interact with the board or with your lawyers or whomever it happens to be without that support, as you said, you're set up to fail.
3: And I think uh, I'll just say Absolutely. that when I, when I mentioned earlier that we have to advocate for our roles and for, for our industry, it's... The, the people in these chairs have to have, and I and I know that it's scary to do this, when you're being asked to do something by your boss, you have to have the ethical backbone to say, I, I'm not qualified to do that. Hmm. And and I need, we need to engage somebody who yeah. has the skills to make sure that this is done right. Instead of trying to do it on their own, I think, and I understand that temptation, I sympathize with it, but I think it's it's only gotten us further down this line. I mean, Ashley's, you know, doing, doing less with less a couple years back, right? And everyone, when we're kind of, when we're together is all bemoaning the same problem, but I don't see it going away anytime soon, unless, um, unless that gets nipped in the yeah. bud rather quickly and people stand up and say, no, sir, I can't, no ma'am, I can't take on two more departments with no more, with no one to help manage that, right? It's, it, you're, it's a recipe for disaster.
2: Right.
0: So, you know, this is a, this is a great conversation and it's gone really quickly and I want to be respectful of time. And so, um, we could take a lot more time on this, but what I want to do, and Steve, you referenced Crimson Tide. I'm going to reference the WWF from 1984. I don't know how many of you Remember, um, professional wrestling, there was a guy when I was younger, Roddy Piper. And if you you know Roddy Piper, very entertaining. Now, I'm not a wrestling guy, but I was younger. So, Google Piper's Pit and Frankie Williams. So, Piper's Pit and Frankie Williams. At the end of that segment, Roddy Piper has a great line that I use a lot. And he says, just when they think they got the answers, I change the question. That's a great line. Just when they think they got the answers, <laughs> I change the question. So Google that. It's only two minutes long. And at the two minute mark, he gives that. But here's the, here's, you guys do have the answers, but I wanna change the question. We know that there's a shortage of talent, right? And it's becoming more acute. And I think, man, we're seeing it accelerate now, Steve. I'm sure you're seeing it accelerate now. I think post COVID. Oh, yeah it's becoming even more acute. It's almost on steroids like MLB used to be. So knowing that there's a shortage of talent becoming more acute, does your opinion change relative to the question, is a degree needed for healthcare facility management? And I guess another way for me to ask that, would you hire a person with a degree, but say three to four years of healthcare facility management experience over a person without a degree, but 20 years of healthcare facilities management experience. Uh,
2: there's no question. It, depending on the individual, I'd take the 20 years experience every mm. day to write. And, you know, if I'm replacing somebody uh, without a transition, I, I mean, I, I that's just, maybe that's because uh-huh. I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> You're not
0: old, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> You're not old at all. <laughs>
2: That'd be interesting to see how the other guys feel about yeah. that one.
1: Go right ahead, guys. So, Peter, first off, I, I love the reference, the 12 year old, and he loves the, uh, the wrestling reference. So, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, to go back to my earlier statement, I think I think it really depends on, on the role you're filling, the team that that leader will have around them. Do they need to be the subject matter expert, or are you bringing in a leader with the communication skills, et cetera? So, I know we didn't get to touch on it, perhaps it's a a further topic, but as we have emerging leaders come up to Jason and Steve, how do we guide them? And They say, hey, what should I have? You know, I think part of that conversation is look at the role you want to fill, look at what you see as being successful in that role and ask your mentors. I mean, this podcast is so much about connecting with mentorship, sponsorship. You try to guide those individuals for the role in that specific organization that they want, you know, really aspire to. So in some cases, that isn't great. But in some cases, it's getting a diploma or improving their business acumen or, as you mentioned just a little bit earlier, their real estate skills. So um, I I think the years of service, it's a little bit different because if you've got the mentors around you to bring someone up, you can still be successful. I'll
3: I'll say that I've seen, I've replaced guys who have 20 plus years experience, but have spent zero of that time and and no degree, but zero of that time in continuing education. Right. Um, And they're not members of ASHE. They're not, they're not connected at all. And so if you ask me if I want to take that person over somebody who's got four or five years of experience, and, but is active in trying to understand and learn and grow through organizations like ASHIE, like AEE, like ASHRAE, and NFPA, and all of them, and you're talking about me in that situation. And I would say, hire me. To be completely honest, I'm like, what, what would you rather have and and what what really what does that 20 years actually get you in my mind if you live in in a vacuum for Mm -hmm. 20 years not learning from your mistakes not learning industry practice best practices lots changed in 20 some years right um then then so i I, i'm throwing a monkey wrench in the middle of that but i would say if you got that 20 year person and they're actively committed in their ashy chapter they're actively working um, on stuff, constantly doing continuing education and absolutely hire them long before you hire me. Um, but if if they are that they think they know it all already and they're just looking to jump from their last facility to a new one. I don't I'd say I think you're you're as a to a CEO, respectfully, you're setting yourself up for disaster. Um I think that person needs to have a hunger for continuing it, yeah. so that you can be that person who can build a good team. In order to build a good team, you need to know what skills you need on that team, right? And ignorance is no place, no no foundation to start from.
2: And I, I completely agree with that. I, I think when I said I'd take that twenty year person, I was—I well, I know I was. My assumptions were that there was someone that was you know actively engaged in the industry and continuous learning and you know and i agree too that it depends on the team around them as and who that individual should be i mean if he, you know, were right in the middle of the hockey playoffs and i'm really bummed out because my canes lost again in every <laughs> time last night and, and even up the, the series but that's a total tangential but you know you look at how many times the uh you know, at halfway through a hockey season, you know, a GM was replaced a coach when they had a talented team and suddenly they took off and made it to the playoffs and won the cup. I mean, you yeah. know, the, the Penguins a few years ago come to mind right away. Uh, you know, having that right person, you can have the uh-huh. best skill set, but if you got the wrong manager, that team's likely to be not very successful and the flip side you bring in the best person. And then, you know, then it's going to be on them to build that team. So that's where, you know, the responsibility on the C-suite it's, they've got to understand what they have and what they need and what kind of culture ultimately they want to create. Um, And so I think part of it too is, you know, someone who can come in and understand what kind of culture it is that the organization is trying to build and, and help create that among their own team.
0: That's a great answer. It's, it's situational. So this is um, this has been really enjoyable and it's flown by. And I just want to ask you all, I'm going to ask one final question if it's okay, because we're button up against our time. And you all communicate really well. And I've, you know, I mean, I've seen each of you in action and so I'm not going to go into this, but you guys communicate well in a variety of different areas. And Jason, you weren't throwing monkey wrenches in. That's why I wanted you to be on this because your background is very different. I mean, you've, you know, your, your road is interesting and you're continuing to build upon your road. So I, I appreciate you throwing the monkey wrenches in, but you all communicate well. So two questions, and if you could limit it to 30 seconds or, or a minute, uh, I I'd, uh, I'd appreciate it. Or if you want to go longer, but here's the question, um, Have you always communicated well? Number one, yes or no. So let's make that a closed-ended question. And number two, what is the biggest, um, what is the, what is, for somebody who doesn't communicate well, what piece of advice would you give them if they're trying to be a better communicator? So two questions. Number one, have you always communicated well do you have to work at it? And number two, for somebody who's trying to be a better communicator, what piece of advice would you give them? And so let's just start with the way we started at the beginning of this. Corey, let's go to you first. So you're on the spot.
1: I love the question, Peter. And quite honestly, no, I've not always communicated well. You probably look back to this podcast as an example. Um, all, <laughs> no, all kidding. But, I, not uh, but, but really, you know, I, I, I think it's something, it's a skill, it's a muscle um, so what I would say to anyone is get the reps and take the time to either present, to lead a team. And that doesn't even mean at work. Think about what you do outside, whether it's a group of friends, right? whether it's, you know, a sport. If you're able to lead or, you know, to communicate that translates, that's, that's your ability to inspire, to direct, to maybe lift up, sometimes to chew out. So it's it's just getting used to that being, and being comfortable with who you are um, far too often. I think we, we emulate leaders we want to be, but sometimes we have to remember to be authentic as well.
0: Excellent.
3: Um, so Jason. the first question I've been told, yes, I've not agreed with that, but most of the people in my life have always said that. Um, and, but, in, <laughs> but to the, the second question, I, I've spent a lot of time. I am an arts major, right? I spent a lot of time on the soft skills side. I spent a lot of time in public speaking classes, in English classes, in, um, in philosophy classes. And most people think what a waste of time that is. Um, but to be completely honest, it's helped me learn to analyze arguments, formulate arguments. Um, and that's in the end of the day, when we're talking about communication and collaboration, we need to be able to do those things, right? So I would say go get yourself enrolled if you don't have, if you don't feel you have those skills in a Toastmasters in your community college, public speaking course in some English courses where you're going to have to do a lot of writing um, and, or, and even some, some intro to logic courses. I mean, that's some of the stuff that's served me the best is, is just going back to the, to the logic stuff that I've had to study and, 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 diving into arguments to understand them, argue against them, argue for them, that those things have helped me immensely in my career.
0: Great.
2: Steve. Well, the first question I would say, absolutely not. Um, So I was petrified of public speaking really into adulthood, but I I started uh, getting involved in uh, early on in some, College programs and uh, things where I had the opportunity to speak a little bit and get involved in leadership roles, which kind of forces you into public speaking. Uh, But I I agree, get the reps in. I mean, look for opportunities and uh, Toastmasters. uh, Jason stole my thunder on that one. But that's I've never done that. But my father did it and loved it. Um, And he was an elegant very eloquent speaker, uh, as a result. But, you know, I think there's other opportunities as well. I mean, all the chapters out there, Ashy chapters, uh, are looking for educational content. And so, you know, if there's something that, you know, you know, you feel comfortable with, put it in an abstract and do a, you know, 30 minute presentation in front of, you know, 25 or 30 of your, your close peers, um, and then as you, you know, put those reps in, you'll get better and better at it. And, uh, and that's, you know, it is, unfortunately it's one of those things that, uh, is a, a skill I think you really need. Um, it's not a hundred percent critical, but man, if you got it, it really helps. Agreed.
0: Agreed. And I would say to amplify what you guys said, if I would, you know, relative to communication, I'm a little bit different tack, but I would say learn to ask good questions and then listen. And that yeah. would help as well. So I want to thank, this was, a, this was a really fun podcast to do. I want to thank Steve Sponbrook, CEO, owner, MSL Healthcare Partners, Jason Tate, Director of plan Operations, Mountain View Regional Medical Center, Las Cruces, New Mexico, Corey Majzak, Director of Facility Operations, St. Luke's Medical Center, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. I enjoy this. I could have gone another hour, but you people have to work. So I don't, but you do. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time.
2: Take care. Thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure.
0: (laughs) Have a great day, guys. This is Peter Martin for the High Reliability Podcast. Thank you as always for listening. It is appreciated.